0: You are about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. About 30 miles south of Buffalo, midway between the villages of Springville and Gowanda, is situated what is known as the Valley of Zoar. This valley is about 7 miles long, from 1 to 3 miles wide, and is one of the most picturesque spots in the western part of the state, but is almost inaccessible. Its name was taken from the scriptures, and the description of the situation of that ancient historic valley there given is almost identical to the modern Zoar. Situated as it is among the foothills of the Alleghanies, and surrounded by hills towering high on, eight, on either side, it is no wonder the first inhabitants thought they had reached a spot of seclusion, a haven of rest, and sat down exclaiming, This is Zoar, Zoar the Impregnable, from here we will never go. Tradition says that neither they nor their ancestors ever did leave, the reason being that they found it as hard to get out as it was to get in. The descendants of some of the first settlers still inhabit a part of the valley. Their name is Wright, and they comprise a family of 25 or 30. Of them, there is not one who is not deformed in some manner about the hands and feet. The deformity is so peculiar as to have given the name of crab claws, and their name would, perhaps, describe their deformity better than any other that could be applied to them. A recent visit to the home of one of these families sat at rest all doubts that might have been entertained as to the truth of the reports that had reached the outside world. In company with a village schoolteacher, a call was made at a dilapidated-looking dwelling situated near the Gowanda end of the valley. Some hesitation was shown by the woman who came to the door about admitting visitors, for these people are aware of their misfortune and rarely permit themselves to be scrutinized. The room into which her correspondent finally entered was comfortably furnished, and contrasted strangely with the exterior of the building. The woman who received us was herself one of these strange people. Her hands had but two fingers each, and the feet were encased in immense round shoes, resembling somewhat of softening boot worn by horses. Other than the two peculiarities already mentioned, there was nothing to excite comment except that her general appearance was good. Presently, a girl about 12 years old entered the room. She was barefooted, and a view of her feet could be obtained. She appeared to be trying to hold her, to hide her hands in the folds of her dress. Her face was round and rosy. Her figure was well-formed and graceful, and she would have attracted admiration anywhere had it not been for the horrible shape of her feet. They were about six inches long, and had but two toes, or rather claws. The claws are about three inches long, and resemble huge crab claws more than anything else. They begin at the instep and curve out, and then meet, meet at nearly about three inches from the place of beginning. On the end of the toes, in place of the nails, are small, sharp-pointed horns. The foot did not seem to have any joints in it whatsoever, as the girl stepped in a solid sort of way, without any spring to her walk. All these things were seen at a glance. At first Anna appeared confused and bashful, but soon, under the influence of the teacher's conversation, She became more talkative and let her hands drop from the folds of her dress. The first sight made the cold chills chase each other up and down the visitor's back. But finally he looked again. In place of a hand was a long bony finger, probably five or six inches long. It began with the wrist, which was very small, and tapered down for about two or three inches and extended straight out the rest of the way. As the girl closed her finger, it could be seen that there were five joints, and that the finger seemed to curl up as an ordinary hand would. The teacher bade Anna get her pencil and paper and a copy of some of the things he had brought for her to do. The girl laid the paper on the desk, and grasping the pencil in both hands, wrote rapidly and very, very prettily. While she was writing, some other children began to enter the room. They were all barefooted, and their feet were all formed exactly alike, and were just the same as Anna's. Their hands, for the most part, had two fingers that looked similar to their toes, but there was one or two with only one finger like Anna's, and others with three fingers on each hand. There were ten in all, ranging in ages from three to about sixteen years. After a few minutes' conversation, the teacher prepared to go. As they arose from their seats, the teacher said, Come, Anna, and kiss me goodbye. How could you bear to think of kissing that girl? said the visitor. She is pretty, but her terrible malformation is shocking. That girl... Although badly deformed, has a soul just as much as anyone. Probably she never receives a kiss except when I kiss her as her parents are very stern and cross. She appreciates anyone who cares for her and shows interest in her. Her mother and father and several other members of her family, uncles and aunts, were not there tonight. They were probably up in the hills somewhere working. How do you suppose they they came to be deformed in this way? There is a legend firmly fixed in the village traditions but of course it is only a legend. The story goes as follows. Early in the present century, the ancestors of the family came to the Valley of Zoar. They did not have the best reputation in the world. One night, a pack peddler came through the forest on his way to Buffalo, and stopped at this house to show his wares and obtain night's lodging. He took from his pack a few golden trinkets which he showed to people. This excited their greed, and instead of giving him a bed to sleep on, They soon had him senseless, and were searching him and his pack for the gold. Not finding any more than he had shown them, they determined to torture him. As soon as he revived, they began operations by cutting off a toe from each foot. This did not bring forth the secret of where his money was concealed, and a couple more toes were sacrificed. Still, he persisted in saying that he had no money, which only resulted in his losing two more toes. He then had two toes left on each foot, the big and the little one. As that torture did no good, they became exasperated and knocked him on the head, and supposing him to be dead, they threw him through a trapdoor into the cellar. Presently, however, the trapdoor was lifted up, and the hands of the peddler appeared on the sides of the door as if he was trying to climb out. This so enraged the family that one grabbed a butcher knife and another a hatchet, and they began hacking at the hands of the poor man. After a couple of strokes, Only one finger was left on hand, on one hand, and two on the other, and at that he fell back into the cellar. The family gathered around the trap door to see if he made any sound, and heard him calling on the Lord to curse that family, and to make them wear his present form, even to the third and fourth generations. Those were his dying words. Whether the story is true or not, of course, I cannot say. But it is evident that the three generations which are represented here all have deformed hands and feet. The story is generally accepted as true by all the people in the valley, and some old settlers say they can remember when it was first told in connection with the murder of the peddler. Cincinnati Enquirer, February 13th, 1892. Now, the birth de- the birth defect here associated with the Zoharites is obviously the, um, I forget what exactly it's called, but the same condition that, like, Lobster Boy and things like that had. The distribution of the def- of this defect among most or all the inhabitants is probably due to the fact this valley was so isolated and these people were probably inbred and didn't get any outside genetics so eventually just everybody in the valley had this same birth defect. In the 18th century, Most Yankee congregations had inured themselves to the awesome sight of the ponderous powdered wigs that framed the the stern Sabbath visages of of the clerics. But the good folk of the Second Church of York, Maine, possessed a parson whose weird headgear caused them to go reverberating down in the annals of New England history, folklore, and legend as Handkerchief Moody. Joseph Moody had not always worn a black crepe veil knotted above his forehead and hanging down below his chin. For 14 years after his graduation at Harvard, he was quite content with and competent in successive positions as clerk of the town of York, registrar of deeds for the county, and judge of the county court. However, his father thought that he ought to preach, and he thought his father knew best. Chiefly through his father's influence, a second parish was incorporated in 1730. In 1732, Joseph hesitantly accepted the charge and was ordained its pastor. For six years he got along tolerably well with a saving of souls, while his wife took charge of temporal things. But when she died, the care of two worlds proved too much for him, and he fell into a state of deep melancholy. In this clouded condition, his once brilliant mind developed a pronounced phobia. No one must see his face. And so he presented himself to his congregation with with his features masked in a black silk handkerchief. For weeks, wonder, speculation, and rumor churned with whirlwind intensity through the village. Was he demented? His sermons were too logical for that. Had he been scarred by an accident? If so, no surgeon knew of it. Had his eyes been weakened by working far into the night on his sermons? With no other plausible explanation, his his parishioners convinced themselves this was the true one. While he was as often besought for funerals as he had previously been, the veiled parson service became, services became less in demand for weddings, christenings, and socials. The timid people turned out of their way to avoid him. The boulder were often flippant or impertinent on the road. So Joseph Moody curtailed his daytime walks, limiting his strolls to the protecting anonymity of night. Then, without the fear of embarrassing encounters, he prowled peacefully through the seclusion of the churchyard, or wandered unchallenged along the deserted shore. Little by little he abandoned his public labors, refusing to officiate, officiate at public gatherings except in cases of unusual urgency. More and more often he sought the sheltering safety of his own chamber. Only on rare occasions, when bound in duty demanded it, did he leave his sanctuary and partake of a meal with others. He was soon relieved of even this ob- obligation, for nothing cast a quicker and more efficient pall over the gayest of village affairs, than the sight of a black-clad figure, crouched alone at a small side table with his face turned to the wall. The confused, equivocal, and torturous groping of his unsteady mind at the time may be inferred by an extract from his diary. This day, while engaged in prayer, I thought of a way to fasten my study door, and afterwards found a better. Before long, the Reverend Mr. Moody abandoned entirely his feeble attempts at preaching, Parceled his children out among relatives, and, relieved of all responsibility, went to live with the family of Deacon Bragdon. By 1745, he had so well recovered from his mental depression, that his 70-year-old father, old Sam Moody, tore off with the younger lads of York to the siege of Lewisburg. Into the hands of his son, Samuel committed the care of his congregation and the delivery of the Sabbath sermon. Joseph supplied his father's pulpit in his own peculiar way. Turning his back to the people, he lifted his veil and read distinctly and audibly a written sermon. But when he faced the congregation for prayer and the benediction, the black handkerchief, fluttering with the rhythm of his breath, muffled and obscured his words. Along with the genes of eccentricity, the Reverend Joseph inherited his father's remarkable gift of oral supplication. His memorable long prayer from the pulpit of York's first church during the, during the Lewisburg campaign has been cited as more than mere coincidence. Frequent communications from Cape Breton conveyed the disheartening news that the fortress was still untaken. Therefore, June 17th was appointed as a day of fasting and prayer in York, and neighboring ministers invited it to attend. In the course of the service, Joseph Moody offered a prayer, and a very lengthy one it was. He first used all manner of arguments, suggested several compromises, and uttered fervent pleas that the Lord would give the place into the hands of the English Protestants, thereby cutting off this limb of the Antichrist. Suddenly he ceased his entreaties, then, scarcely pausing for breath, he began to give thanks that the citadel was at last ours, and to praise God at great length for his unmerited mercy. He closed his devotions with the words, Lord, we are no better than those that possessed the land before us, and it would be righteous if the land should spew out in its, its inhabitants a second time. When the forces returned from the expedition and compared dates, it was found that the capitulation was closed on the very day of the fast and, as could be ascertained, at the very hour when Mr. Moody was presenting his petitions to heaven. Two years later, when peace was settled between the two countries, Louisbourg was restored to France, and its inhabitants spewed out a second time when the English troops withdrew from the garrison. Death called unexpectedly for Mr. Moody in 1753. Joseph had pushed back from the deacon's dinner table and repaired to his room in exceptionally good spirits. In his exuberance, he began to hum, and then to sing aloud one of Watts's hymns, in which occurs the line, Oh, for an overcoming faith, to cheer my dying hours. All afternoon long he caroled lustily, refusing to take time from his song-fest to join the family at supper. The next morning, he was found dead in his bed. Years later, an old friend said in retrospect, It is my opinion that, if he had been left alone to to follow his own course in society, without preaching, he would have done more good in the world. He could have brought up his children himself instead of leaving them to the care of others, would have had some more real enjoyment, and perhaps saved himself the trouble of wearing his handkerchief so long. But by then, legend had taken over and ascribed another reason for the the minister's idiosyncrasies and his doleful departure from the realities of this life. Feeling that his hour had come, Mr. Moody sent for a fellow clergyman to soothe his dying moments, commend his soul to mercy, and hear his confession. "'Brother,' he said, "'the veil of eternal darkness is falling over my eyes. Men have asked me why I wear this piece of crepe about my face.' and I have borne the reason so long within me that only now have I resolved to tell it. Long ago, Joseph revealed, he had inadvertently killed his best friend while on a hunting trip. Dreading the blame of his townsmen, the anguish of the dead youth's parents, and the scorn of his betrothed, the minister concealed his guilt. The town believed that the killing was a murder, the act of some roving Indian. But for years, the face of his dead friend rose accusingly before him. In desperation, and determined to pay a penalty for concealing his sin, Joseph finally resolved that he never again would he look his fellow men openly in the face. Then it was, he whispered, that I put a veil between myself and the world. As he had requested, handkerchief Moody's black crepe hid his face in the coffin. But the clergyman who had raised it for a moment to compose his features there found a serenity and a beauty that were majestic. The next two tales are from Charles B. Skinner's 1896 book, Myths and Legends of Our Own Land. The village of Mutis, Connecticut was troubled with noises. There is no question as to that. In fact, Machi the Indian name of the spot, means place of noises. As early as 1700, and for 30 years after, there were crackings and rumblings that were variously compared to fusillades, to thunder, to roaring in the air, to the breaking of rocks, to the reports of cannon. A man who was on Mount Tom while the noises were violent describes the sound as that of rocks falling into immense caverns beneath his feet and striking against cliffs as they fell. Houses shook, and people feared. Reverend Mr. Hosmer, in a letter written to a friend in Boston in 1729, says that before white settlers appeared, there was a large Indian population. The powwows were frequent and that the natives drove a prodigious trade at worshipping the devil. He adds, An old Indian was asked what was the reason of the noises in this place, to which he replied that the Indian's god was angry because Englishman's god was come here. Now, whether there be anything diabolical in these things I know not, but this I know, that God Almighty is to be seen and trembled at in what has been often heard among us. Whether it be fire or air distressed in the subterranean caverns of the earth cannot be known for there is no eruption, no explosion perceptible, but by sounds and tremors which are sometimes very fearful and dreadful. It was finally understood that Haddam witches, who practiced black magic, met the Mudus witches, who used white magic, in a cave beneath Mount Tom and fought them in the light of a great carbuncle that was fastened to the roof. The noises recurred in 1888 when houses rattled in witch at Salem, eight miles away, okay, Salem's a lot more than eight miles away, um, and the bell on the village church sung like a tuning fork, the noises have occurred simultaneously with earthquakes in other parts of the country, and afterward rocks have been found, moved from their bases and cracks, and have been discovered in the earth. One sapient editor said that the pearls and the mussels in the Salmon and Connecticut rivers caused the disturbances. If the witch fights were continued too long, the king of Machimati, who sat on a throne of solid sapphire in the cave whence the noises came, raised his wand. Then the light of the carbuncle went out. Peals of thunder rolled through the rocky chambers, and the witches rushed into the air. Dr. Steele, a learned and aged man from England, built a crazy-looking house in a lonely spot on Mount Tom, and was soon as much a mystery as the noises, for it was known that he had come to this country to stop them by magic and to seize the great carbuncle in the cave, if he could find it. Every window, crack, and keyhole was closed, and nobody was admitted while he stayed there. But the clang of hammers was heard in his house all night. Sparks shot forth from his chimney, and strange odors were diffused. When all was ready for his adventure, he set forth, his path marked by a faint light that moved before him, and stopped the closed entrance to the cavern. Loud were the moodest noises that night, The mountain shook and groans and hisses were heard in the air as he pried up a stone that lay across the pit mouth. When he had lifted it off, a light poured from it and streamed into the heaven like a crimson comet or a spear of the northern aurora. It was the flash of the great carbuncle, and the stars seen through it were as if dyed in blood. In the morning Steel was gone. He had taken ship for England. The gem carried with it an evil fate, for the galley sank in mid-ocean. But though buried beneath a thousand fathoms of water, the red ray of the carbuncle sometimes shoots up from the sea, and the glow of it strikes fear into the hearts of passing sailors. Long after, when the booming was heard, the Indians said that the hill was giving birth to another beautiful stone. Such cases are not singular. A phenomena similar to the Mootis' noises, and locally known as the shooting of Neshoba Hill, occurs at times in the eminence of that name near East Littleton, Massachusetts. The strange, deep rumbling was attributed by the Indians to whirlwinds trying to escape from caves. Bald Mountain, North Carolina, was known as Shaking Mountain, for strange sounds and tremors were heard there, and every moonshiner who had his cabin on that hill joined the church and was diligent in worship until he learned that the trembling was due to the slow cracking and separation of a great ledge. At the end of a hot day on Seneca Lake, New York, are sometimes heard the lake guns, like exploding gas. Two hundred years ago, Aga Yenna, a wise and honored member of the Seneca tribe, was killed here by a lightning stroke. The same bolt that slew him wrenched a tree from the bank and hurled it into the water, where it was often seen afterward, going about the lake as if driven by unseen currents, and among the whites, it got the name of the Wandering Jew. It is often missing for weeks together, and its reappearances are heralded by the low booming of what? The Indians said that the sound was but the echo of Agayena's voice, warning them of dangers and summoning them to battle, while the wandering Jew became his messenger. Among all the impish offspring of the stone god, wizards and witches that made Detroit feared by the early settlers, none were more dreaded than the nine rouge, red dwarf, or demon of the strait, for it appeared only when there was to be trouble, and that it delighted. It was a shambling red-faced creature, with a cold glittering eye and teeth protruding from a grinning mouth. Cadillac, founder of Detroit, having struck at it, presently lost his seignury and his fortunes. It was seen scampering along the shore on the night before the attack on Bloody Run, when the brook that afterwards bore this name turned red with the blood of soldiers. People saw it in the smoky streets when the city was burned in 1805, and on the morning of Hall's surrender, it was found grinning in the fog. It rubbed its bony knuckles expectantly when David Fisher paddled across the, the strait to see his love, Solange Galdet, in the only boat he could find, a wheelbarrow, namely, but was sobered when David made a safe landing. It chuckled when the youthful blood set off on Christmas Day to race the frozen strait for the hand of Buffer Bouvet's daughter Claire, but when her lover's horse, a wiry Indian nag, "'came pacing, and it fled before their happiness. "'It was twice seen on the roof of the stable "'where that sour-faced, evil-eyed old mumbler, "'Jean Jean Grand, kept his horse, San "'a beast that, spite of its hundred years or more, "'could and did leap every wall in Detroit, "'even the twelve-foot stockade of the fort, "'to steal corn and watermelons, "'and that had been seen in the same barn, "'sitting at a table, playing seven up with his master, and drinking a liquor that looked like melted brass. The dwarf whispered at the sleeping ear of the old chief who slew Friar Constantine, chaplain of the fort, in anger at the teachings that had parted a white lover from his daughter and led her to drown herself, a killing that the red man afterward confessed because he could no longer endure the tolling of a mass bell in his ears and the Friar's voice in the wind. The Nine Rouge it was who claimed half of the old mill on Presque Isle that the sick and irritable Josette swore that she would leave to the devil when her brother Jean pestered her to make make her will in his favor, giving him complete ownership. On the night of her death, the mill was wrecked by a thunderbolt, and a red-faced imp was often seen among the ruins, trying to patch the machinery so as to grind the devil's grist. It directed the dance of black cats in the mill at Pont Rouge, after the widow's curse had fallen on Louis Robert, her brother-in-law. This man, succeeding her husband as director of the property, had developed such miserly traits that she and her children were literally starved to death. But her dying curse threw such ill luck on the place, and set afloat such evil report about it that he sw- took himself away. The Nine Rouge may have been the Luton that took L'Esperance's ponies from the stable at Grosse and leaving no tracks in sand or snow, rode them through the air all night, restoring them at dawn, quivering with fatigue, covered with foam, bloody with the lash of a thorn bush. It stopped that exercise on the night that Jock hurled a fawn of holy water at it, but to keep it away, the people of Gross Point still marked their houses with a sign of a cross. It was lurking in the wood on the day that Captain Dalzell went against Pontiac, only to perish in an ambush. To the secret relief of his superior, Major Gladwin, for the Major hoped to win the betrothed of Dalzell. But when the girl heard that her lover had been killed at Bloody Run, and his head had been carried on a pike, she sank to the ground never again to rise in health, and in a few days she had followed the victims of the massacre. There was a suspicion that the Nine Rouge had the power to change his shape for one not less offensive. The brothers Tremblay had no luck in fishing through the straits and lakes until one of them agreed to share his catch with St. Patrick, the saint's half to be sold at the church door for the benefit of the poor and for buying masses to relieve souls in purgatory. His brother doubted if this benefit would last, and feared that they might be lured in the water and turned into fish. For had not St. Patrick eaten pork chops on a Friday, after dipping them into holy water and turning them into trout, But his good brother kept on and prospered, and the bad one kept on grumbling. Now, at Gross Isle was a strange thing called the Rolling Muff that all were afraid of, since to meet it was a warning of trouble. But like the fou fillet, it could be driven off by holding a cross towards it, or asking on what day of the month came Christmas. The worst of the Tremblays encountered this creature, and it filled him with dismay. When he returned, his neighbors observed an odor not of sanctity on his garments and of their view of the matter was that he had met a skunk. The graceless man felt convinced, however, that he had received a Devil's Baptism from the Nine Rouge, and St. Patrick had no stauncher allies than both the Tremblay's after that. Just how I came to live in the house I will call Holly Tree Cottage would take too long to relate here. It will be sufficient for me to explain that I am a journalist, on the staff of a London Daily, and that on my return from an important mission to a North African court, I was faced by the immediate necessity of finding a new home. Weary with the exhaustion consequent on six weeks in the saddle, most of the time with fever on me, and no proper food available, it will be easily understood that when Holly Tree Cottage was suggested on condition that I would pay just sufficient rent to cover the rates and taxes, I at once moved in and took possession, and having settled my furniture, Began on the huge accumulation of work awaiting me. Holly Tree Cottage was a very old house, built in the seventeenth century, solid and picturesque. I had only gone through the house once before I went there to live, because, it being imperative that my series of articles should begin instantly on my return, I really had not the time for much investigation, nor did it occur to me until long afterwards that it was an odd thing so prettily quaint a con- comfortable a little place should go seeking a tenant, evidently for some considerable time, as evidences showed. The rooms were all paneled. There were odd little casement windows and a tortuous stair with a wicked sudden twist in it that was exceedingly dangerous to the unwary. In one of the rooms, in which I made my study, was a carved chimney piece that rejoiced me every time I looked at it. In front was a long stretch of garden, with box borders and the holly tree enclosed within an old hammered iron gate and railing. The path from the gate to the porch was paved with oblong flagstones of sandstone. The steps leading down to the kitchen were also sandstone, as was another little path running down the yard. The front door with its obsolete bell opened directly into the dining room hall. Out of the dining room, the steep uneven staircase ascended on the left. Behind a screen of paneling hid a tiny little room we made into a bathroom. On the first floor was the room with a carved mantel, with its windows overlooking the garden, the road, and the wide expanse of meadow and orchard lands across the river. At the back was a smaller room in which I made my bedroom. On the next landing were three other rooms. A long quaint apartment was over my study, with a charming old leaded casement looking out onto the meadows, and a pretty old 17th century fireplace, with deep old-fashioned cupboards on either side. The ceiling was very low in in this room, and the boards sunk in here and there with age. The other two rooms looked out on the gardens behind, neither of them boasted fireplaces, and all three doors opened on a small landing. Curiously enough, The door of the front room could not be opened if either of the other two doors were open. In the top of the front room door, about five feet from the floor, was a small sliding shutter through which one could look into the room without being observed. I came back to England at the end of November. In the first week of December 1906, I was installed in the cottage and hard at work. A cousin who was with me did all my removing, and when I was not engaged in writing, We were always very busy together in making the top room very pretty with such quaintly fashioned things as we could collect at short notice to furnish a 17th century interior in time for the Christmas holidays so that we could pleasantly surprise my little daughter, then at the convent in Roehampton. On the Monday of Christmas week, my housekeeper began to complain of a sound in her room as if somebody were spitting at her in the dark. I laughed a good deal and told her it was a dream. At the same time, I asked her why she came down so regularly in the night, and had such bad stumbles on the stairs at the crooked corner. To my surprise, she utterly denied ever having left a room in the night since we had come to the cottage. I did not know what to think, and asked my cousin if she had not heard Maggie going down at night. She told me she had heard her regularly, and wondered what she could have on her feet to make her shuffle so badly. Maggie, however still stoutly denied ever having left the room, and there it remained. That night, I waited for the slow shuffling step on the stair, but it did not come, nor did I hear it again till after the child had come home from the convent, and was almost ready to return again after the holiday. Then one night I heard it, very loud and distinct crossing the floor of her bedroom, and coming slowly and haltingly down the stair. I wondered what had taken Maggie into the child's room at such an hour, and pushing my writing on one side, I went softly to the door and waited till the step was on the landing outside. Then I flung it open, expecting to confront my servant, and found nothing but a most revolting and horrible odor. In all my travels and experiences, and I have seen and experienced some gruesome things, I have never encountered anything so terrible as that stench. It was the quintessence of of decomposition. I fell back, overcome, sick and faint, calling on my cousin, and the child, and saw, to my horror, the door slowly closing, as if brought to by an unseen hand. Then the step shuffled on down to the dining room and ceased. I was too horrified to follow, and as neither of the young people seemed to have heard my call, I remained in my study. But finding it impossible to work, I opened wide the windows and went to bed. Sometime afterward, I was awakened by the sound of a large soft body rubbing slowly and unsteadily against the paneling of the staircase as the footsteps went up again. That was too much for me. I rose and raced up the stair into my daughter's room and found her sitting clasping her knees in bed with all the candles in her room alight on her little otter and her rosary in her hands, praying. I did not say anything, only that I had heard a noise and wondered if she were awake. She asked me if I noticed a smell, and I, trying to conceal my feelings, opened her window and advised her to try and sleep. There was no gas laid on in this top room, but I went down for my reading lamp and lighting it, placed it on the table below her altar and left it there. There was no sound from either my cousin or the servant, so I returned to my own room and tried to think it was all imagination. My daughter went back to school, and immediately after, my housekeeper left me. She had no fault to find with this situation, but she thought she would like a change. Her place was filled by a younger woman, and I plunged into the book I was writing again. I finished the book, but no sooner was it in my publisher's hands than I became seriously ill, and my daughter was sent for. For some time, it was feared I might not recover. However, I pulled through, and began to see early in my convalescence that both my daughter and my cousin looked far more fagged and unhappy than the circumstances justified. Also, my servant departed without the usual notice or wages due to her. Another who came to, took her, to take her place served us in the same fashion, and soon, till after some difficulty, a seventh servant was obtained. She also departed, complaining, like Maggie, of someone who spat at her in the dark. The smell and the footsteps became such common occurrences that the terror of them left us to a certain degree. But one night, my daughter came down to me about two in the morning after the footsteps had gone up, and declared nothing would induce her to ever sleep in that room of hers again. She had been awakened by a soft flabby hand on her mouth, and another at her throat. She spread her eider down on the study couch and slept there. The night after, my cousin descended, and slept on the floor beside her. She said the odor was so terrible she could no longer bear it. From that time we were never free from this visitation. Even in the broad day, the shuffling unsteady steps would come down the stair, accompanied by the odor of death, and passing us by would go down through the dining room and out of the porch down the red path to the gate and return. Once while I had a little lunch on, the steps came down, and the awful smell sent us all flying into the garden. Only one of my friends had the courage to re-enter the house. The others went home. I entertained at my club after that. A friend, Mrs. P., who had been wintering abroad, wrote to me at this time asking me to put her up for a week. I thought I would say nothing about the room and put her in. The first night nothing happened. On the second night she came down and expressed her determination of sleeping on the study couch as my little daughter was away and she was able to rest there. She told me that she was awakened by soft fingers fumbling over her face and an overwhelming odor of corruption. She realized immediately that she had to deal with something not of this world and sitting up quickly inquired what it was. What are you? She asked and what is it you want me to do for you? But the thing, whatever it was, only puffed out corruption at me, and I grew faint, so I rushed down to you. This friend is one of the most courageous women I know. She is a great huntress, very matter-of-fact, and sensible, and in no way given to imaginings. But she would not remain with me after that night, and went off, advising me to get another house. She was sure the thing was evil, and intended us harm. I laughed at that, and though I would have liked to have removed to another house, I was so pressed with work that I could not do so. Besides, it seemed to me to be a poor thing to fly from the place at the bidding of an impalpable something that could not even be seen. However, my illness was followed by my daughters, then my cousin was ill, and my doctor advised me to shut up the cottage and go into the country for a while. I was further depressed by hearing that my friend Mrs. P's horse had rolled on her and nearly killed her. At this juncture, I one day paid a b- visit on business to Mr. S, and thinking it would interest him, I told him about the hauntings. Mr. S, being furnished with the names of my cousin and my friend, and having satisfied himself that the thing was real, wrote some account of it for a London paper, and instantly I was overwhelmed by offers of investigation. Nobody took into consideration that I could not work with investigators in the house, nor could I fill my of small abode with men who wanted to sit up all night to see a smell. However, in my absence, the sub-editor of one of the daily papers arrived at the cottage. My cousin received him and took him over the house. He asked to be left alone in the haunted room and remained there for some time. He heard the steps shuffling across the room and tried to follow them. He then went all over the house, into all the rooms, and made a thorough investigation. He wanted to stay all night, but my cousin, who was only airing the rooms... Could not, of course, allow that without my consent, and he went away. He was a very tall, strong young man, of about thirty or less, very keen, intellectually and kindly. My cousin, a very conservative person indeed, was greatly taken with him, a fortnight after he was dead of pneumonia. There was peace after this for a short time on my return, but at the end of July, the disturbances began again, infinitely worse, and very terrifying. I began to look for another house. At this time too, a distinguished savant, a man of great intellect, desired permission to come and investigate the phenomena. I agreed, but nothing could be discovered of course. Finally, I went to pay some visits in the Channel Islands, taking my daughter with me and my cousin going home. As no servant would even come in, the day, come in by the day now, the cottage was shut up and we remained so and remained so till we came back to England. We returned to it in September of last year, and set about finding another house. Not an easy thing when one is seriously engaged the best part of the day in writing. However, it seemed almost possible we were to be left in peace, as both noise and odor were absent. I forgot to say my bedroom opened on the study. On the night of the 3rd of October... On the night of the 3rd of October... I was awakened by a strange noise, as if some heavy body were being slid downstairs and had stuck at the angle. Presently, it seemed to be right it, and came with a terrific bang against my study door. The door did not open, but in some horrible fashion, the heavy body came through. In entering, the room was hurled, as it were, at the window facing the couch. My daughter called out to me in terror, and I rushed out into the middle of the room in time to hear a slow grinding noise, as if the body, whatever it was, had been thrust through the open window, and down over the porch to the path beneath, where it fell with a wooden thud, such a sound as would have been made by a large packing case filled with sawdust, or a coffin containing a dead body. We were both so thoroughly frightened now that I went out in the morning and took the first house that offered, as far away from the cottage as could be discovered. But before leaving, I determined to have a thorough hunt from top to bottom of the place. My cousin came up to assist me, and we investigated, following on the sounds and the intolerable odor persistently, and discovered no more than we already knew, that the whole thing emanated from the front room on the top floor, and returned there. At this time I opened my paper one morning, and read in it the news that the great writer who had last followed the thing had, like the newspaper man, come to an untimely end and my thing grew. I did not say anything to my cousin, but I could see she was frightened also. We sent over sufficient things to keep us going and left the cottage that day. 2 days afterwards, the vans brought over all the furniture, and while the men in charge of the removal were placing it, I went with my little girl to see a friend who had been unwell for some time. I may mention here that I am very light on my feet, quick and short-footed. On my way back, I was hurled off my feet on the station staircase, and fell to the very bottom. One of my arms was broken at the elbow and wrist, my knee put out, my middle finger on one hand broken, and my back badly jarred. I was picked up unconscious and brought home. It was as narrow an escape from death as I ever hoped to have. So it would appear that as it... So it would appear that impalpable as the something is that's haunting the cottage, it has the power to select evil circumstances for those who trouble it, or interfere with it in any way. Mr. S.'s suggestion is that it does not know it is dead, and needs someone to tell it so. Perhaps. I am recounting a plain tale, just as a thing happened, and leave it for someone more courageous than myself to discover the why and the wherefore, and to face the possibility of death or accident as a result. So far, those who have escaped disaster are the child and the young girl, who both met it with prayer for its rest and ultimate salvation in Christ. About a dozen years ago, an unshackled poet who signs himself E.E. Cummings, just like that, no capitals, penned, as part of a longer product, these prophetic words. For she knows the devil, ooch, the devil, ouch, the devil, ock, the great green dancing devil, 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 wee, the way they were scattered about the printed page had nothing to do with the fact that they were prophetic. In looks and sound, and even in continuity, they might have been a serious and fairly sober report of the Devil Man scare recently current in Louisiana, and most recently in New Orleans. Was he man or myth? Nobody knows. There was a scare, and it swept the state, that much is certain. There was fear of the Devil Man in the, ba- in the Baptist Bible Belt of North Louisiana and there was just as much fear of him in the French Catholic South Louisiana. Apparently he wasn't concerned about religions. It was altogether an incredible, fantastic affair. Also, it was not a little goofy. Devils may have been more or less household pets in Europe's Dark Ages. Mephisto and Dr. Faustus may have been bosom buddies. But somehow devilmen don't mix appropriately with streamlining and radios in that shiny modern refrigerator that puzzles old Aunt Minnie because it freezes by burning a small flame. Nevertheless, Louisiana had a devil man, and New Orleans had a devil man most recently of all, at least as late as October. Fully half the city's population would swear to that, and not all of that half of the population is coward either. A genuine dyed-in-the-wool devil, who turned red, sprouted horns, vanished into thin air, and tossed bullets back at foolhardy policemen who fired at him. At least, that's what people were saying. It was the same story in North and South Louisiana as in New Orleans. Horns, disappearances, bullet tossing, and all. Hundreds prepared to insist devoutly they'd seen him. Thousands believed he was in the offing, whether they saw him or not. It was a fine case of mass hysteria, and it landed a couple people in jail. When hundreds of frantic telephone calls began pouring into the switchboard at police headquarters in New Orleans, The day and night operators, to a woman, began to be convinced that whether there was or wasn't a real devil man at large, somebody was raising the devil all over the city. Police were pretty skeptical, but after a while they arrested themselves a victim, and announced they had the devil man in jail. Now, you can't charge a man with being Satan, so this one was booked with vagrancy, and a judge sentenced him to 30 days in the house of detention. The idea was that with the announced devil man safely behind bars, the spasm of terror that enceased the in- the ignorant would dissolve for lack of something to quake about. It was a nice idea, but it didn't work. That devil man's locked up in jail, huh? Snorted at the thousands who had been locking their windows doubly tight for weeks. Now, how you gonna keep the devil behind bars? He'll just slip out and go back in that old place whenever he wants to. So things went on happening. The same old stories. Somebody saw a man at a dance who turned fiery scarlet for a few minutes and frightened the dancers. Somebody else heard that the man was in a saloon somewhere making glasses walk up and down the bar. And it was whispered the fellow vanished when time came to pay for the drinks. A rumor raced through the city that a policeman had cornered the devil man and fired point blank at him. But of course the devil man just laughed and threw the bullets back in the officer's face. Exactly seven days after the alleged devil man was arrested and and launched on his 30-day sentence, the stories hit the jackpot. At noon recess on a Friday, in the Joseph A. Craig Negro Elementary School in downtown New Orleans, someone shouted, Devil Man! Panic and bedlam broke loose simultaneously, and no time at all children were making an earnest effort to choose the nearest exit and run, not walk. Negress principal M.D. Coghill and a corps of teachers did a Horatius at the bridge in every doorway, trying to stem the stampede. The devil man cry flashed through the neighborhood, and an avalanche of quaking mothers appeared to take their children home and hide them under the quilts. It was easily the most memorable noon recess in the history of the Joseph A. Craig School. Twelve and a half hours later, shots rang out in the dark and stilly night about four blocks from the Craig School. Neighbors blamed it on a 22 year old Negro laborer, one Reginald Hughes. On him, they found a shiny new revolver, complete with two recently emptied shells. I shot at the devil man, Hughes gasped. I fired to keep the devil man from getting me. Police got him instead. He was booked with discharging firearms within the city limits and with carrying a concealed weapon. Twenty four hours went by broken by nothing but the usual flood of frightened telephone calls to police headquarters. Then a new angle bobbed up. Somebody called police and insisted that a devil baby, complete with horns and a tail, had been born in New Orleans at such and such an address. The devil sure got us now, the informant volunteered. Beginning to be slightly irked, police investigated. They returned, with with considerable irritation, to report that if the baby they went to see was a sure enough devil baby, he was satanic enough to pull in his horns and make his tail disappear when they inspected him. 48 hours passed. More phone calls. Then one from Mrs. J.S. Moraine, who lives on Ursuline's Avenue. Excitedly, she guessed that a voice via the telephone had informed her that he was a devil man, and that he would visit her at 8pm. Object, murder. Two policemen were detailed to ambush the Devil Man at Miss Moraine's residence, but when the caller didn't appear by about 10 p.m., the thrill had worn off, and the officers went back to the precinct station. By this time, the whole thing was distinctly getting into the police's hair, but with the death threat to Miss Moraine as a sort of com- as a sort of climax, the scare began to abate. Calls still came into the headquarters switchboard for a week or two. Then the devil man panic vanished like the devil man himself. While school children fled screaming, while a devil baby was being born, while threatening phone calls came in, and while hundreds of frightened town folks shattered their teeth at the police switchboard operators, a small strange black man was under lock and key at the house of detention. His name was Carlton Clark, and he was born 30 years ago, he says, in Fordyce, Arkansas. He has a deep voice, a heavy mustache, and eyes that look outward in opposite directions. Police say he was the devil man. Clark denies it. My grandfather was noted as a Baptist minister, but since moving to this latitude, I am more interested in Catholicism. I find it more appropriate. I have studied theology. I am interested particularly in Josephus. I have gathered a few books and read them since I left school in the fourth grade. I have read the five-foot shelf of the great Dr. Eliot of Harvard University. This was while I was being brought up as a porter in the Kilgore Hotel in Fordyce and in the Kingsway Hotel in Hot Springs. It is difficult to explain my ideas without my astronomical charts. I have been spiritually instructed. In Fordyce, in the month of February 1936, I was visited by a king. He was the king of Mars. He was a representative under the Queen of the South. This great king told me that to attain Virgo, I must first be a Mardi Gras. So I wore a red coat, and carried a red handkerchief as an indicative sign that we should have water in season and out. But as for being a devil man, ah, no. The spirit of the people will not see me as a destroyer, as a devourer. I would not do that, no sir. The King of Mars also told him to keep his hat on at all times, but Clark told New Orleans police he was too polite to do that in their presence. He's altogether a very self-possessed character, with an astounding vocabulary, and the seat worn entirely out of his trousers. Maybe he's the devil man, and maybe he's not. But something started this devil man hysteria, and New Orleans police would like to know who or what it is before it breaks out again. Meanwhile, they speculate that it might have something to do with voodooism, which flourished for centuries in New Orleans among the Negro slaves, and still crops up, now and again, in coward districts. What or who will the devil man turn out to be? Or will he ever be discovered? A lot of people would like to know. That was a piece by Maurice Reese, which was published in the San Bernardino County Sun on December 18, 1938. And finally, our last tale appeared in the Rochester, New York, Democrat and Chronicle for August 16, 1909. Much of yesterday was given up by the police of the 3rd and 5th precincts to investigation of the series of fires that occurred late Saturday night. The inquiries were thorough. Captain McAllister and Clubertants going over the territories in person, making inspection of the burned buildings, and talking with persons having more or less knowledge of the fires. The reports of the two captains to Chief Quigley which were received late yesterday afternoon, state that none of the fires of Saturday night could be traced to incendiaries. In the third precinct, the fires were the largest and the damage heaviest. The commission house of Walter May at number 157 Railroad Street was ruined, nothing remaining but the concrete walls. The building occupied by the Wayne County Dryers and Packers Fruit Company at number 145 Railroad Street was also completely wrecked. The ruins of the building will have to be torn down. In his report, Captain McAllister says he has found that the fire started in the northwest corner of the Fruit Company's building. The blaze was first seen near the top, indicating that the fire originated in the roof or directly under it, as the flames were bursting out of the window at that corner as well as through the roof. Carl Costello, of 131 Central Park, a foreman employed by the Eastern Basket and and Veneer Company, told the captain he was early at the fire and saw flames leaping through the fruit company's upper floor before the May building caught fire from it. A.E. McLean, who was associated with Mr. May in the produce business, said the fruit company building was, was on fire first. Patrolman Rossiter informed the captain that he was at the fire 15 minutes before the flames communicated to the May building. Other men have been found who tell the same stories as to the origin of the fire. Captain McAllister got into communication in the morning with George Bose of DeWitt, engineer of a freight train that arrived in front of the company's building as the flames were breaking out of the roof. Bose told the captain over a telephone that he saw the fire just as his train was pulling eastward through the yards. He reversed his throttle and caused the whistle to be blown for five minutes to give the alarm. Bose is believed to be the first man to see the flames. The four boys who claimed to have seen a man jump off the platform on the front of the May building and disappear in the driveway were before Captain McAllister. They told contradictory stories, as they did to Chief Quigley on the night before. The boys said they were at Pennsylvania Avenue and Niagara Street, when they heard the whistle of the engine. As it would have taken the boys several minutes to reach the scene of the fire from there, the police do not think they saw an incendiary. They figure that an incendiary would not have remained about the premises that length of time after the fire had obtained a good start and been discovered by the train crew. Switchmen on the railroad tracks claim to have stood about the train a few minutes after the whistle started to blow and they saw no man run out of the doorway to the tracks. William P. Daly, night engineer at the armory, saw a small balloon pass over the armory a short time before the fire broke out in the Fruit Company building. He watched the balloon and thought the flame beneath it came from a sponge saturated with some inflammable liquid. It appeared to him that that the balloon fell upon the roof of the Fruit Company building. Sergeant Armand J. McGuire reported to Captain McAllister that at about 9 o'clock Saturday night, he saw three balloons which seemed to be attached to one another, pass over that part of the city. They appeared to descend in the vicinity of the public market. Captain McAllister has obtained photographs of the burned buildings. Captain Clubertons reported that the fires in J Street were not of incendiary origin. He said both fires were found to have started inside.